0: We're going to have a conversation uh, with our last guest, Dr. Al Gillespie, about a few aspects of the state of the world, a, a state which is not a steady state, of course. And we'll start briefly, I don't know how productively, with what's being referred to in a macabre sort of way as sudden Russian death syndrome. 23 elite Russians have died now in less than a year in circumstances that are definitely suspicious. These are oligarchs. Billionaire or two magnates, CEOs perishing through ostensible suicides, violent burglaries, heart attacks, poisoning by toad venom in one case, and the usual falls from speedboats, hotel windows, cliffs and downstairs. A global murder mystery is the headline given this by the Sydney Morning Herald. Waikato University's international law professor Alexander Gillespie is the author of the multi-volume series The Causes of War and A History of the Laws of War. Al Morena. Good morning, Jim. Many of these are the people who run Russia in important ways. I mean, they're not all anti-Putin. You read analyses of this and no one knows why or how their teams of bodyguards have not been able to protect them. The deaths have mostly happened in Russia itself, China and Saudi Arabia. There's speculation, Al, that inevitably if you cull and purge important men, they're all men except the their poor families who've also suffered or died. Um, if, if you if you purge these people, or if they're all squabbling among themselves so violently, can a society survive this level of insecurity close to the centre of power? What is your suspicion about what's happening here?
1: Well, I think if you are in Russia and you are a traitor, or you are mutinous, or you are a high profile critic, you can expect quite a short lifespan. But with this particular problem of the sudden death of oligarch syndrome, there's clearly a trend, and you've got dozens of high-profile men ending quite quickly. What it means, I am uncertain, but I never thought that these people would become an endangered species.
0: No. Well, everybody's uncertain, so you're not alone. It's really puzzling. Can we talk about other things? The failed Ukrainian counter-offensive over this past summer, or shall we just say a limited degree of success? in tandem with waning U.S. support for an ongoing war, what are the implications now?
1: I think there's a number of things to watch with this. For for 2024, the first point is that Mr. Putin is going to increase the military budget of Russia by up to 70%. He's also putting an extra 170,000 troops into the field. And so this means you can expect a very strong Russian counterpunch coming soon. With support for the Ukraine, I think the Europeans will stay strong. I think Mr. Biden wants to stay strong in the United States, but Congress is getting quite sticky right now. But if Mr. Trump returns to power in November, I think American support for the Ukraine could be gone by December.
0: And what happens? I mean, the argument from the head of NATO is that the more we help Ukraine, the quicker the war will end. But as you say, there is not the stomach for that anymore Everywhere, although the UK seems staunch, so what will be the result on the battlefield? Or can we take that uh, as red from? Can we take a bad result for Ukraine as red from what you've just said? I think at
1: the moment it's unlikely that you're going to be able to force Russia out of any of the occupied territory. Mr. Putin remains very popular in in Russia. He's got about seventy-five percent support ratings. The, the sanctions that we applied to him did not topple him. The 50,000-plus death toll of his own soldiers did not mean that his own population turned against him. There seems to be very little dissent. And so I think he will push very hard until the West loses its willingness to keep supporting Ukraine to the point that we want, and then he will tr- try to get a peace deal, maybe. So sometimes Russians prefer just to keep the wound open and never to heal.
0: If there is a conference table peace deal solution with Russia retaining seized Ukrainian land and guarantees built in for Ukraine's security, nominally anyway, does anyone trust this would last? I mean, would Ukraine then need to be in NATO to be safe and would Russia tolerate that, do you think?
1: There was a deal done in 1994 where the Ukraine gave back its Soviet nuclear missiles to the Russians. And their territorial sovereignty was guaranteed by Russia and Britain and the United States. And as we know, that deal was not worth the paper it was written on. With any future deal, if there is a question about NATO, it will be difficult because the catalyst for Russia going to war was about Ukraine potentially joining NATO, and yet that may be the only thing that the Ukrainians would actually want right now to guarantee their future security. But aside that, we've also still got the questions about what about the war crimes that have happened in the Ukraine? What about the territories that have been seized in the east? And what about retribution for the damage done to their country? It's a very
0: difficult problem, which is likely to get worse in next year. Okay, and talking more about that general topic, the horror of Gaza, and the dreadful details being revealed of what Hamas did to Israeli women in the original attack. Perpetrators will never be brought to book in this conflict, either, will they? I mean, legal redress, is it useless? I mean, the UN itself is riven, seemingly, in a more serious way than usual.
1: There's no shortage of atrocities, indiscriminate and disproportionate warfare going on in the Gaza Strip right now. But the irony is is that we've got a lot of rules saying what you can and cannot do, but we've got an extreme shortage of their application. There is an answer here, which is that you would refer these matters to the International Criminal Court and they would become a concern of all of us in the global community. But right now, neither Israel nor Hamas have got any interest in this type of international oversight of what may or may not be going on. We seem to be moving towards a more lawless world.
0: Is there a moral difference between what the Hamas fighters did in Israel and Israel excusing civilian casualties in Gaza because Hamas is using human shields. I mean, if the IDF strikes a building with fighters inside and civilians are killed as well, does the absence of evidence of civilians constitute evidence of absence, as the saying goes, legally in war? There are moral
1: and legal differences between the crimes which each side may or may not be doing. And often it goes to the question of intent, because sometimes you have an an atrocity where you intend to do the action, like you intend to murder someone or you intend to take them hostage. But with other crimes, you've often got what may be a, a reckless or a disproportionate or a negligent response, but you still get the same impacts for death. And so is there a difference Yes, but you're also now seeing a number of intentional actions on the part of Israel, such as stopping the aid and the, the humanitarian relief getting into the besieged areas, which are also very problematic. And so increasingly, the lines between the ethics, the politics and the law are all starting to blur.
0: They would say that it's in the interests of, you know, the swift military effort they're aiming for, wouldn't they? That's the... But is there any moral difference between what Israel is doing in Gaza and what British bombers, for example, did to Dresden in World War Two?
1: So in the Second World War, what the British were trying to do to, to Germany was area bombing, and they were trying to break the morale of the German people. So they weren't just focusing on military targets. What you're seeing in Gaza is, in theory, different. The focus is meant to be on military targets, It should not be indiscriminate. But how much all this is actually occurring in in practice when you've got two million people in a very small area, which is often urban, is often very questionable.
0: Or has ever occurred in practice recently. I mean, in recent times, referring to Dresden again and the carpet bombing of the cities and the firestorms.
1: The, the point here, though, is that each action where civilians are targeted or collateral, it should be independently investigated and it should not be done by the military which is accused of the crimes. You need outside external overview of these situations so we can work out what happened, that guilt can be attributed and then punishment applied. It's easy to be quite pessimistic right now, but there's no alternative because we've been trying down this pathway for hundreds of years where we've got to try to put more order into the war, because otherwise the inhumanity just keeps repeating. And as technology changes, the consequences get worse for all of us. What do you think of what New Zealand's
0: saying about Gaza?
1: I think it was a good start, but it needed to go so much further. I mean, it was important to talk about international humanitarian law, but they should have mentioned accountability for crimes it was good to talk about the two-state solution, but they should have talked about pathways to get towards that, such as recognition of Palestinian statehood, or even discussions about what peacekeeping may look like in the Gaza Strip after this. So a useful first step, but it didn't really add anything to the debate.
0: Doesn't the two-state solution always, uh, to put it simply, meet with sabotage? I mean, there's all, there are always actors in the region for whom this is not the thing they want. I think that's
1: fair comment, that there's a lot of forces on all sides that would prefer just to keep bludgeoning their opposition and exploiting the situation. I think the two-state solution is imperfect, and it's going to be very difficult to build, but there is no alternative. Because if we don't eventually achieve that, we're going to keep seeing history repeating again and again and again.
0: This is big news in the United States and ongoing big news. A thorny issue at a U.S. congressional hearing when one of the leading Republicans, Elise Stefanik, tackled the presidents of Harvard, MIT and Penn State universities over anti-Jewish protests on campus. And she kept asking them, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? And they said things like, it depends on the context and whether the speech turns into conduct. And those answers are seen in certain quarters as disingenuous because if you named any ethnicity except Jews, uh, you couldn't answer that way. Partly this comes down, I think, as it has here with Chloe Swarbrick, in a minor way, to what from the river to the sea Palestine will be free means. There's no way to get agreement on that either, basically. Not that I see.
1: It's important that we do protect free speech, but at the same time, even greater for my mind is the importance to protect a rule-based global order where we can have restraints on warfare and we can start to find pathways to peace. Right now, too many people are seeing this like a football game where you support one side or the other. And I don't think that's where we should position ourselves. It's about trying to find ways that we can improve humanity and ultimately reduce the chances of conflict in the long term.
0: On the same topic, just finally, a piece in the Atlantic Monthly summarizes all the violence abroad in the US, more than gets reported here, against mostly Jews, I think, but also Palestinians. And it's headlined. Progressives who once argued that free speech is violence now claim that violence is free speech. There's some truth to that. There is a
1: lot of inflammatory speech out there at the moment, and I think there's a wider freedom of speech in the United States than there is in New Zealand. My particular concern is when the the anger related to the speech can spill into violence and potentially into terrorism. And the alert levels at the moment have not escalated too much, but there is a risk that as people become increasingly unhappy with the situation, that they'll turn to violence in other countries, especially in the Western world. And I think that would be a most unfortunate outcome.
0: Good to talk. So we're not going to solve for the global murder mystery of the uh, rich men of Russia dying in mysterious circumstances. Do you suspect they would ever get Putin? Because one theory is that you know, Putin may be next at some point, but it's hard to see that, isn't it?
1: I think if Prigozhin didn't get Putin when he staged his mutiny a few months ago, I think Putin's pretty safe for the time being. That he's Mr. Putin seems to have tightened down the screws throughout his regime, and I think the chances of toppling him in the short term are not great.
0: Good to talk with you. Thank you for your expertise, as always.
1: You're welcome, Jim.